Open the Bible continues a special presentation of heaven, so near, so far. This dramatization of Pastor Colin Smith's book of the same name is the story of Judas Iscariot. Pastor Colin has weaved together what we know from the Bible about the events of those days and views them through the eyes of Jesus' betrayer, as he would have experienced them at the time and as he can understand them now. Maybe you or someone you know has stepped away from faith. Well, this story is for you today. Let's hear more from Heaven So Near, So Far. Welcome to this special edition of Open the Bible. We're in the middle of an audiobook. It's called Heaven So Near, So Far, and it's based on the book by that same title, written by our Bible teacher and host, uh, Colin Smith. And Colin, uh, for those who are just joining us, we're actually about halfway through the story of Judas Iscariot. And we're right at the heart of the story. We're at the moment where he's made his decision that he's going to move away from Jesus. What a decision that was. Imagine having followed Jesus for three years and making this decision. Right. But you know, this is the whole point of the story, that there are people who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then move away from that faith. And the point of this drama is to put out a plea from the heart don't abandon Jesus Christ. He is of supreme value and it is worth any cost to follow him. But we're going to look at the story of Judas' uh, decision right there at the Lord's Supper and in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're at the heart of the story. So glad that you're able to join us today. Well, let's get right to the story. We are about to begin chapter five. Chapter five, decision. Over the next four days, I thought carefully about my position. I decided that the time was right for me to make my move. I gave three years of my life to what I now saw as a failed enterprise. I was determined to get some return from the investment I had made. By being in the inner circle, I had access to what the priests wanted and desperately needed, intel about the movements of Jesus. Information is power and I figured that what I had was worth a great deal. Slipping away from the other disciples, I made my way to the palace of the high priest. When I knocked, a servant named Malchus came to the door. I told him that I had information that would be highly prized by his master, that it concerned Jesus, and that I was ready to make a deal. After a few minutes, a large group of priests, dressed in full regalia, marched down the hall, ushered me into a small room and closed the door. They were wise enough not to ask my name and came straight to the point of our mutual interest. Now, what is this information about Jesus that you think would be of interest to us? I decided to answer their question with one of my own. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They looked at each other with surprise and obvious interest. Ignoring my question about the money, they focused on clarifying the offer I had just made. One of them repeated my words slowly so that each of them seemed to hang in the air. You can deliver him to us? Yes, I said. How will you do that? I will need a full cohort of soldiers and they will need to be armed, I said. I will lead you to where he will be and I can identify him for you so you will be sure there is no mistake. I could see they were sold on my proposal and knew it was time to close the deal. So, how much will you give me? I asked. 
30 pieces of silver. My face drained and my blood ran cold. 30 pieces of silver was the kind of money you paid for a common slave. I was stunned by this lowball offer. I was about to demand a higher price when it hit me. I was trapped. By going to the priests, I had exposed myself as one of Jesus' circle. If I walked away, I would be a marked man. And at some point, when they finally caught up with Jesus, they would have it in for me. Besides, I was alone in the house of the high priest, and no one knew where I was. They had the power to arrest me, and if that had been their choice, I would have disappeared without a trace. I arrived confident that the initiative was in my hands. I left knowing that the power was in theirs. Having begun with thoughts of making my fortune, I quickly realized that my priority was simply to survive. So, without commenting on their insulting offer, I simply said, fine. I left the palace and once in the street breathed a huge sigh of relief. After making the deal, the last thing I wanted was to rejoin Jesus and the disciples. The more you enter into sympathy with the enemies of Jesus, the less you have in common with his friends. But to fulfill the promise I had made to the priests, I needed to know Jesus' movements, and for that reason I went back to join him for what proved to be his last supper. When the time came for us to take our places at the table, Jesus motioned to John to sit on his right, and then, to my great surprise, he invited me to sit on his left. Taking his place at the head of the table, Jesus became visibly troubled. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. A sense of shock descended on the whole group, and realizing the danger of the moment, I did my best not to react, except to share their sense of astonishment. Thankfully, reclining immediately next to Jesus, I was hidden from his line of sight as he looked down the table. As usual, Peter was the first to break the silence. Lord, is it I? he asked. Jesus made no answer. Then John asked the same question. Lord, is it I? The question seemed to move around the circle. James, Thomas, Andrew, and Matthew, each of them wanting to know if he was the one, but Jesus made no answer. Two things struck me. First, no one asked, is it Judas? That reassured me. Second, they all seemed to feel that they had it in them to let their Lord down. Knowing the corruption of their own hearts, none of them felt that treachery was beyond them. Then, Jesus said some words that have stayed with me ever since. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Distracted by this thought for a moment, I snapped back into reality and realized that I would draw attention to myself if I did not join the others in asking, Lord, is it I? So wanting to make sure that I was not the last to ask, I touched Jesus on his shoulder and whispered in his ear, is it I, Rabbi? 
with Jesus making no response to any of the others, no one was paying attention when I asked my question, and the answer Jesus gave to me was spoken so softly that only I could have heard it. Turning toward me and speaking just a few inches from my ear, Jesus replied, You have said so. A few moments later, Bartholomew raised his voice from the far end of the table and asked, Lord, is it I? This was the eighth time that the same question had been asked, and as far as the other disciples were aware, Jesus had made no response. The thought of the other four all asking the same question was too much for Peter, so he cut to the chase and he motioned to John, who was sitting to the right of Jesus, ask him who it is. Fear gripped me. I knew why Peter was asking. Jesus had said that someone in the room was about to betray him, and Peter wanted to know who it was so that he could deal with the problem by eliminating that person. When I arrived at supper, I had noticed two swords, one of them Peter's ominously placed in the corner of the room. I knew that if at that moment Jesus had said to John, tell Peter it is Judas, Peter would have drawn his sword and run me through right then and there. I held my breath as John leaned back against Jesus and asked, Who is it, Lord? Jesus answered so softly that no one other than John to his right and I to his left could hear the answer. It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Then Jesus dipped the bread and turning around, offered it to me. When a host offered bread, it was a sign of friendship. And as Jesus extended his hand, I felt his love reaching out to me again. For a fleeting moment, the thought occurred to me that I could say to him, Jesus, I have something to confess. I have felt the pull of evil. I have been stealing money from the bag. I have made a deal with the priests and taken money to betray you. Please have mercy on me. But I steeled myself against this thought. And remaining silent, I took the bread he offered. As I ate the bread, I knew I had crossed another line. But I was strengthened by a resolve that seemed to come on me at critical moments in my journey. I felt it first when I had gone to the priests, and I felt it again as I took the morsel of bread from Jesus. Looking back, I now see that Satan launched a relentless assault on my soul. If that makes you feel sorry for me, please spare me your pity. Satan seeks the destruction of every follower of Jesus, and his assaults on me were no different from what he attempts with any other disciple. Satan can only enter a person's life when that person opens the door. I had opened my life to the enemy through my persistent refusal to repent, and Satan entered through the door I had opened. Every time I sinned and refused to confess, my sin acquired greater power over my soul until in the end I lost all trace of the desire I once had known to follow after Jesus. What you are going to do, do quickly, Jesus said to me. There was no doubt about his meaning. I had made my decision, and Jesus was dismissing me from the room. I got up and left without looking back. 
Now I was outside the circle, excluded, and no longer welcome. To hell with it, I thought. They don't want me, and I don't want them. I walked out into the night, knowing that I was finally done with Jesus. But what a sobering place to pause the story of Judas Iscariot. We're in the middle of a dramatic audiobook called Heaven So Near So Far, and Colin, one of the things that stands out to me is there are a number of times where Jesus really seemed to be showing grace and love to Judas. Yeah, the extraordinary thing about Judas' story is that when he walks away from Jesus, he walks away from love. Mm, yeah. And you see that even in the upper room where he uh, makes that awful decision and eventually walks away. Jesus offers him the bread. That's a sign of friendship and love. Right. Uh, and Jesus is looking at him. Yeah. And here's an opportunity for him to confess. And I want to say to the person who's listening and is pulling away from Jesus right now, you don't need to do this. The love of the Lord Jesus Christ is extended towards you. You do not need to abandon him. Why would you be a person who walks away from the love for you that there is in the heart of Jesus Christ? Steve, I hope that through this drama, there's going to be many folks who are going to think again and say, I want to stay with Jesus and I want to be counted among his people. Well, absolutely. And Colin, one of the things that uh, you point out is Judas had these opportunities potentially to turn, but he didn't. In uh, this chapter, he felt this almost resolve, if you will, to continue down this path of betrayal. Was Judas ultimately a victim? I mean, was he destined to do this? Judas made choices again and again and again, and the Bible distinctly emphasizes this that choices were being made. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're seeing that in the story all the way down the line. And uh, there is such a thing as a wretched choice. And our choices are real, and we're responsible for the choices that we make. And that really is at the heart of this story. There is no better choice than to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no worse choice than to abandon him. Well, we're going to look at that abandonment in just a moment, so hope you'll stay with us. You're listening to Open the Bible with Pastor Colin Smith and a special edition today as we listen to a presentation of Heaven So Near So Far, the story of Judas Iscariot. Open the Bible is able to be here on Premier Christian Radio because of the generosity of listeners just like you. And this month they have something new and exciting to offer. They're making a number of changes to the website, including making it easier to give. You can visit the website at openthebible.org.uk and as a token of their appreciation for your financial support, they have a special gift for you. It's Pastor Colin's latest book, Six Hours That Changed the World. And Colin, who is this book written for? Well, the book is all about what happened during the six hours that Jesus hung on the cross. Jesus spoke seven times during these six hours, and each time we learn more about what Jesus was doing while he was there. I mean, he was praying, he was opening up heaven, he was carrying our sins, and most of all, he was pouring out his great and everlasting love for each one of us. Now, I think... Christians are well aware of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that was poured out for us on the cross. But you will know someone who does not yet grasp the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for them. 
So this gift book is especially for him or for her. And if you're looking for a clear, biblical and compelling presentation of the gospel to give to someone in your life this Easter, I hope you'll get hold of a copy of Six Hours That Changed the World and give that to him or to her. Well, the team are excited to be able to offer Pastor Colin's latest book, Six Hours That Changed the World, in appreciation for your support. For setting up your regular donation of at least £5 a month, they're happy to send you a free copy of the book as a special thank you gift. Learn more when you go to the website, openthebible.org.uk. Again, that's openthebible.org.uk. Let's continue Heaven So Near So Far... Here's Tyler Weeks with Chapter 6. Chapter 6 Defection My time in the upper room was well spent because now I had all the information I needed to fulfill my promise to the priests. I had learned that after the supper, Jesus would go to a garden outside the city. I knew the place well because Jesus had often met with us there. It was a quiet place at any time of day, but at night it would be completely deserted. Armed with the knowledge of where Jesus would soon be, I made my way across the city to the high priest's palace. Again, it was Malchus who opened the door. Round up the men, I said. My plan was meticulous. I thought of everything. If the disciples resisted Jesus' arrest, we were armed with swords and clubs. If Jesus chose to hide in the garden, we had torches and lanterns and would search until we found him. Our force was overwhelming in numbers and strength, and without the presence of the crowd to protect him, I was certain that our mission would end in success. When everyone was gathered, Malchus called the group to order. He reminded them of the importance of our mission and then invited me to give instructions. We are heading to the Garden of Gethsemane, I said. Jesus will be there with his eleven disciples. Apart from them, the place should be deserted. I knew that if I relied on pointing to Jesus in the darkness, there would be room for confusion, especially if the disciples started running in different directions. So I settled on a sign that could not be mistaken. When we arrive in the garden, I will identify him with a kiss, I said. A nod and grunt of approval went around the group. When I kiss him, I continued, you must arrest him immediately. No delays. And when you seize him, make sure that you hold him securely. Whatever you do, don't underestimate him. I have seen him still a storm and even raise the dead. Some of the Roman soldiers at the back seemed to find this amusing. Here we were, a great crowd, fully armed, setting out on a mission to arrest one man who had the support of no more than eleven friends. The size of the force and the intensity of my instructions seemed ludicrous to the professionals, who must have wondered why we were mounting what seemed like a major operation to accomplish something so apparently simple. But then, they didn't know Jesus. With our preparations complete, we set out. Jew and Gentile united together, the power of religion and the power of the state moving as one with the objective of arresting and binding Jesus. It was an overwhelming force, and I was leading them. Me, Judas Iscariot, the one who was always named last among the disciples. Now I was at the front striding out with a vast armed force behind me, all of them following my lead. 
My moment had finally come. When we arrived at Gethsemane, I could see the disciples scattered across the garden. It looked to me as if they had been sleeping and were still in the process of getting to their feet. What took me by surprise was that Jesus came striding toward us. I had thought that I would have to seek him out, but instead, he stepped forward resolutely from the trees as if to confront us. Whom do you seek? he demanded. His question was addressed to Malchus. This was not what I had expected. I had told the priests that I would go up to Jesus and kiss him, but Jesus had seized the initiative, and now I was unsure of how to proceed. Malchus responded to the question, Whom do we seek? Jesus of Nazareth, he said. What happened next was quite extraordinary and wholly unexpected. Jesus said, I am he. As he said this, we were overwhelmed by a blinding flash of light. It was so intense that our entire army, the priests, Pharisees, elders, and Roman soldiers, along with Malchus and myself, collapsed on the ground as if we had all been struck by a bolt of lightning. I felt rather foolish lying there in the dust, and looking up could see the surprise of the disciples. It must have been quite a sight. Hundreds of armed men with swords, clubs, lanterns, and torches, all falling backward and landing on top of each other on the ground. After a few moments, I got up and brushed the dust from my clothing. Behind me, the temple guards picked up their torches, lanterns, swords, and clubs, and behind them, the Roman cohort slowly got to their feet. None of them were laughing now. When we were all back on our feet, Jesus repeated his question, Whom do you seek? Somewhat shaken, Malchus replied as he had before, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. The plan that called for me to identify Jesus with a kiss now seemed completely unnecessary. But without knowing what else to do, I went ahead anyway. Greetings, Rabbi, I said as I moved toward him. Before I could reach him, he responded with a question that still haunts me. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Even in the garden as I was about to betray him, Jesus was reaching out to me in love. It was as if he were saying, do you really want to do this, Judas? I hesitated for a moment, but I had passed the point of no return. Ignoring his last plea, I took that final step forward and kissed him. That kiss was the most futile thing I ever did. I had thought of it as the centerpiece of my elaborate plan, but it accomplished nothing except to confirm my defection from being a follower of Jesus. The armed force was equally futile. I had brought an army of several hundred men, but in truth a single arresting officer would have been enough. Turning to the priests, elders, and Pharisees, Jesus said, 
Have you come out as against a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. With this, Jesus stepped forward presenting his wrists so they could bind him. And as he did, the disciples ran off into the night. I recalled how Jesus had said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus was not arrested as a helpless victim. He gave himself willingly into the hands of his enemies. The group I had been leading took Jesus to the high priest's palace. But once they had their man, they had no further use for me. And since the disciples had already fled, I was left alone in the garden. You're listening to Heaven So Near So Far. It's the dramatic reading of a book all about Judas Iscariot, written by Colin Smith. And Colin, that's quite the picture of Judas left there alone in the garden. And it just made me think that here Judas thought there was going to be some great payoff. But what ultimately uh, happened is he ended up being used by the Pharisees and the religious leaders and then forgotten. And it seems like when we play around with sin or, or enter into walking away from Jesus, that's really the outcome that we could expect. Yeah, that's right. And I think every Christian knows what this is like. Sin promises what it cannot actually deliver. Yeah. Uh, you think there's going to be some payoff. There's going to be some uh, real satisfaction. And actually, it isn't there. And then the other thing is that it takes you a place you never intended. And it yeah. leaves you in a place you never wanted to go. And all of that, I think, is there in the experience of Judas. Well, we're listening to the dramatic audio reading of a book by Pastor Colin, Heaven So Near So Far. It's the story of Judas Iscariot. And if you'd like to find out about how you can get a copy of this book for you or for someone that you care about, come visit our website, openthebible.org.uk. Well, we're about 75% of the way through this book. Hope you'll join us next time as we continue Heaven So Near So Far. For more information on Open the Bible and Pastor Colin's book, Heaven So Near So Far, visit openthebible.org.uk. And if you missed any part of the program, or if you would like to hear this special series in its entirety, you can listen online at openthebible.org.uk. Why did I miss out on heaven when for three years I followed and served Jesus? The answer is surprisingly simple. I gave up on Jesus. As long as you are with him, you have hope. But if you leave him, you lose everything. The conclusion of heaven so near, so far on the next Open the Bible.